it's interesting, like there are some people at the, the minority of people at the top of the pyramid, let's say a really well-established author. It's very, very rare for them to do anything for somebody that's at the bottom. Um, you know, they're, they're just having, you know, whatever people tweet about them and talk about them all day long. Um, it's almost as if there's a, there's a weird inversion sort of reputational power structure thing going on where they'll rarely actually, um, let, and maybe it's just, you know, protection, right? Like protecting their reputation. Um, but you'll rarely see them, um, give nearly as much as they get if that makes sense yeah. in in terms of in terms of like helping helping others get off the ground and then we'll kind of meander into into the podcast at, at some point over these next couple of minutes and you probably go are we recording and i'll go yeah it's it's uh it started <laughs> yeah it's good not knowing when it starts and when it ends is kind of the best way i think sometimes we can talk about the nature of podcasts themselves i think that'd be fun <laughs> it's, a, it's a revolutionary thing isn't it to sit down in a conversation medium and have a conversation how ridiculous is that the situation that exactly we're in? exactly how far we've come like why what's your opinions on podcasting that's a good place to start i want to hear you've obviously got something to say you know i don't know i you know i've done so many of them i'm still trying to kind of work out my thoughts i mean there's something very unnatural about it in the first place right like yes you and i are having are meeting each other for the very first time in the context of a recorded conversation right yes so that's one of the things that I find odd. Like before I started doing this, I thought there was like a get to know you period where people, you know, have a prep call or something like that. It turns out that nobody has time to do that. So there's like live on air, one person trying to get to know the other person. It never quite feels natural. I think a lot of people don't know how to do it very well. Um, combined with, you know, as you know, as, as we've joked about before, I mean, you and I have got to know each other a bit online. Um, but you take that combined with the standard list of questions that somebody that's written a book has been asked the same questions 150 times. And it's like, I'd rather just somebody shoot me in the head than, than try to define the word, you know, mimesis one more time. So it just, it creates something that I find very artificial. I think, you know, there's a way to do it. And like, but there's so many podcasts where like, I'll listen to somebody for two hours and I feel like I don't know them very well. And that to me is, is a bit of a problem, right? Like I, I haven't heard anything, um, anything that seems like it's sort of arisen naturally in the conversation. Everything sort of seems forced. Well, that that's the weird thing about podcasts, isn't it? The, the, like I just, just said, they're, they're meant to be a conversation, but they're not most of the time. And you've got this, hold on, my cat wants to get out. <laughs> Yeah, that's a real conversation. I that's right. I have the same exact problem. I have a cat <laughs> who's always right behind me. She sleeps like right behind my chair. And there's a door right here that I'm pointing to. And if I don't let her out in the middle of the podcast, she starts scratching and meowing and doing all kinds of crazy things. So I've learned my lesson. Yes. Well, I've just before this, Luke, I've already stepped in cat piss. 
So uh, <laughs> just today, ju- just today. Yeah. L- literally 30 minutes ago, I stepped in cat piss just before I was setting up for this podcast. Anyway, what was I saying? Okay. Yeah. Podcasting. Yeah. The, there's so many things, so many barriers with the majority of it. You've experienced this that make it unnatural. The, the whole idea for a podcast really should be to make it as natural as possible because even if you're going down the, uh, oh, wrong one, value, value route, you want to make sure that it feels normal and natural because you don't get any new insights out of somebody otherwise. But the way that most people prep for podcasts is they don't have confidence in themselves to have a, co- a conversation. So they just prepare 30 questions that they've heard from the last podcast. Well, I hope we're not going to say mimesis too many times in this, Luke, but it, <laughs> it it's the very definition of mimesis. All the person yes. does is they go to a previous podcast that you've been on, write down all the questions and ask you them again. Exactly. And the way that those first podcasts got the questions in the first place, in most cases, were I had a PR agency that sent them the questions that they were supposed to ask me, <laughs> along with the answers that I'm supposed to give. And obviously, I riff off of it. Um, but it's the whole thing, you know, when it's done a certain way, it's very manufactured. I mean, it's almost like reality television. I mean, it's it, it has this, like, appearance that it, two people having a conversation, but that's not what it is at all. I, I have a theory that most people don't listen to podcasts, that there's, there's like 90% of them that people don't actually listen to. They say they've listened to it because it's good to have listened to it. You mm-hmm. know, certain podcasts, I won't name any names for once, but certain podcasts <laughs> you should listen to. So they say they've listened to them. But I don't listen to, I don't listen to podcasts almost ever. Um, I, I have, I've listened to yours because you were on with Thomas. I really wanted to hear that one. There's a handful of podcasts that I listen to, um, but I only started when I started to have to go on them myself. I think it's like books, right? There are certain books that people have to say that they've read in order to be, I don't know, a serious person or something. And we all bullshit and say that we've read some of these books and, uh, and, and we haven't. And so I think you're right. I think the same thing happens with podcasts. It's like, you know, in this sort of weird sort of intellectual society that we're all trying to live in where everybody's sort of, you know, posturing, um, in this way, you know, you're sort of, you're not in the know unless you've listened to what X, Y, and Z people have to say, or, um, and if, and if you don't, then you're somehow, I don't know. It's like, you're not one of the cool kids or something like that. It's, it's very strange. Well, even in these times, I bet your, your podcast tour has been more like the book tour hasn't it anyway? I mean, there is no real book tour anymore. You know, I think people stopped doing that a a long time ago. I mean, even before COVID that the idea of a book tour, had sort of died out. Um, you know, it's, it's book tours are strange. Like I had these like glamorous ideas of what it would be like to, to be an author with a major publisher and go on the book tour. And then I started asking the publisher, I'm like, so tell me about the book tour. Like, what's that like? And they're like, yeah, that's not really a thing. You're sort of on your own to figure all that stuff out. Um, I guess it's different, you know, between nonfiction and, and fiction writers. Like if you've written a novel or something like that, you, I guess you probably get to talk to some really cool, interesting people. Um, but like people don't show up to bookstores or talks normally to, to hear like nonfiction authors. I mean, unless you're going to like go to like a stuffy university environment and give a lecture, that's kind of the, that's the circuit for people that have written a nonfiction book. And in fact, I, I find that a lot of nonfiction book writers 
write the book essentially as a business card for talks. Yeah. Like, like the, like they, they write the book with the sole purpose of like getting, that's the the ticket that they're punching for the talking circuit. I didn't really write mine with that in mind at all, because frankly, I hate giving talks. I really don't like it. I mean, I do it all the time. Um, I do it enough for some people that know me think that I'm an extrovert, but I'm not at all. I'm a complete introvert and I don't like giving talks. And one of the ways that I've started to like slim down the amount of talks that I give is I just list like some outrageous price for the, for the talks because I hate doing it so much. And I'm like, if you're willing to pay that price, then I'll give the talk. Otherwise that sort of like keeps people away. Well, that's, I think that's the thing with, with a lot of nonfiction books. I'm not going to categorize yours in this because I think there's a lot of artistry in your book and it's funny and it's, it's good to read if there's actually a story in it, but you're right. A lot of the, a lot of nonfiction books, they're just either the same ideas repeated over and over with, with no personality whatsoever, or they're, they're literally just a business card. And, and then there's kind of this weird thing on, on Twitter then that, uh, well, you'll have just seen in the Discord, right, in the cult, where we were just talking about somebody's favorite book list, and it was all nonfiction books, all with no personality. And we, we're in this kind of weird, weird place where we we put what appears to me to be easier books to write on a higher pedestal than the harder books to write, which is complex fiction and stories and series and things like that we put the non-fiction on a higher pedestal than we do the fiction which is bizarre to me yeah I, and i think it sells better the, the the likelihood of a non-fiction book selling well um is a lot higher than a, than a fiction book the fiction books like publishers buy them like venture capitalists you know they bet on a hundred and maybe one of them will do okay because it's just it's hard to tell what people are going to respond to Nonfiction, there's a certain formula involved. You know, if you, you know, you're talking about business or you're in certain industries, there's a certain cohort of people that are always going to buy those books because it's almost as if, if they don't read them they're they feel like they're falling behind in the information economy or something like that, or they've missed out in some new sort of Gnostic knowledge that everybody else who has read the book knows except them. And then, you know, you have companies that are always looking for speakers. Like they need, when they have a corporate retreat or something like that, they need to have a keynote speaker. It's just, there's a whole industry around that. And publishers know that and authors know that. So they're sort of responding to what what there's a market for, quite frankly. And there's a total formula. Um, I know a lot of nonfiction authors don't even write their own books. You know, they're ghost writers that write these things and you wouldn't know the difference because it is so formulaic. You know, you don't have to have a voice. You can just say, you know, here's this, here's this study. Like you find some piece of data and there's a lot of writers that do this. And then you basically tell this interesting, like Gladwellian story. And then by the way, here's, here's all the data to back it up. And the whole book is here's the data. Here's a cool story that backs up the data. It's just the whole book. Um, And to me, that's not, I don't know. It doesn't seem fun. First of all, like it doesn't seem like the way that I'd want to, I'd really want to write a book. Um, You know, like, I don't know, like take a stance on something, like say something beyond just the data itself. That's my view at least. Have have skin in the game, right? Yeah. How you know you hold a point of view, actually see it through to the end and say it, but that's uh, somewhat of a controversial, controversial viewpoint. 
especially one thing took me in, in your in your book, the whole thing about the cult of experts. Um, I, I've never really thought about it that that way before. Um, do do you want to say a little bit more on that? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, well, the cult of experts is a phrase that I took from Rene Girard, who's the thinker that inspired uh, the whole book. And he refers to the cult of experts and says something to the effect of, you know, in a, in a world like ours, um, it's hard to sort of, um, you know, we don't live in a world with, with, you know, um, where there are clear models to follow. Uh, so like, you know, in the, in the golden age of sort of Christendom, you know, there were like the saints that everybody looked to and, um, you know, there were certain sort of, sort of people that everybody sort of uh, could agree on that were, that were worth sort of, um, listening to at least. And, and also the very notion of expertise, even 80 or 90 years ago was different than the, than the way that we think of expertise today. Like you could look at somebody, I mean, the, the word expertise sort of comes from, uh, experience, somebody who has learned through experience and it used to be craftsmanship, like the actual craft. So you could look at somebody carving a rock or I don't know, you know, building a building and you could look at them with your own eyes and say, Oh, this person is an expert. <laughs> they're, they're a craftsman. They're really good at what they do. And you can sort of verify their expertise with your own eyes. And Gerard sort of says, you know, we don't live in that world anymore. And in this sort of knowledge economy, uh, expertise is kind of hidden. Uh, you know, one can claim expertise and it's sort of like hard to kick the tires and verify it. I mean, sure, there are university credentials, but we all know that just because you got a degree from a certain university doesn't mean that you can't also be full of shit. Um, you know, it's so, you know, it basically that, but everybody sort of is trying to claim expertise in a certain very small niche. And, and you see that, right. You see that in social media, like everybody is an expert in something and that's, that's fine. Um, but there's, there are a lot of, you know, is there a place for, for people that, I don't know, it, the, by cult of experts, it's almost as if everybody feels this like deep need and anxiety to, to demonstrate their expertise in a certain area. And, you know, what about just like living our lives and, and not necessarily having, you know, do all seven and a half billion people on, on the earth need to build a social media persona around some niche, you know, topic of expertise? I, I don't, I certainly don't think so. Um, and it's just become harder to tell who's, who's, who actually knows what they're talking about and, and who doesn't on the surface level, um, yeah. you know, because it's, a, it's just a different world and, we don't have that interpersonal contact that we used to have. Um, I mean, I come from sort of a, a, a mindset where I like to look people in the eye and, and that's how I sort of know whether or not I trust them. You know, I like to get a beer with them, shake their hand and look them in the eye. And I haven't been able to do that in 18 months for the most part, you know, since the pandemic hit. So in that kind of an environment, um, there's been sort of a, a, a race to, a race of hot takes and, you know, my, my hot take is better than yours. And it's like part of the breakdown, I think that we're seeing in American society, at least is like total confusion about who to listen to, 
who to believe. Um, it's the hot take on me in the words of our friend, uh, Thomas. And, uh, and I think that has everything to do with the cult of experts. Mm. I think there's a couple of things going on, isn't there? I'm, I'm reading, I don't know if you've read it. Have you read the image by, uh, Daniel Boston? I have not. Excellent book. It is unfortunately a nonfiction book, but I do recommend it. Um, it, it was written a hell of a long time ago. I can't remember when it was written now, but um, it, it, it's old. And he talks about that exact thing you were just saying then, that, that as you get towards the middle of the book, he, t- he starts talking about celebrity, the idea of celebrity, and the fact that nobody really anymore, and it's even more true now, nobody's really known for... In, in in kind of really old times, we were all, the people we respected were people who had done something or achieved something, adventurers, or, you know, they built something with their hands, or you could look at somebody and immediately see their credentials, because it was just self-evident, because they'd done something of worth, whereas um, what what the book discusses is this idea of the image, whereas we've morphed towards just trying to generate an image and that now generates a, a desire to become known for being known, uh, and uh, and literally nothing else. You you, uh, he links it all into the mimetic desire thing. He doesn't mention mimetic desire in the book, but he's talking about people having a desire to become known for being known. And then you you get into this. He talks about this idea of pseudo events, about how everything nowadays even though this book is 50 or 60 years old, um, everything is dictated by a pseudo-event. So what he meant by that is that um, we're talking about press releases here, and and, um, just like what you was talking about at the beginning of this, where you said all the topics that you go on podcasts and talk about have actually been generated by your PR company. The topics that have been generated are the pseudo-event. And the pseudo-event is more important than the actual event, which is you, effectively. Um, And he talks about how everybody has become a gigantic pseudo-event, where everything that a person does um, or is seen to be aware of or react to is more important than the actual person. So think going to a restaurant and taking a picture of your dinner and and put it on Instagram. The most important part of that experience is actually eating the food, being with friends, that kind of thing. But that isn't the thing that is the most important to us as in a wider society. The pseudo-event is more important. The actual picture of the event taking place to evidence to everybody else that we are having a good time. The The actual good time isn't the bit that's the most important. Uh, and we, we've kind of just rapidly spun out of control in in that idea with the the whole cult of expert thing as well you don't need to be an expert you need to be seen to be an expert and everybody does um or at least everybody's desire seems to be that it's bizarre exactly yeah and and being seen to be an expert is can be mimetically generated or hacked in a way i mean to be seen as an expert by somebody just means that they have to look to somebody else that sees you as an expert. So it sees you as an expert. So in a way 
you just have to get whatever the critical mass is, um, the right number of people, like be the first mover, get the right number of people to see you as an expert and you can carve out expertise in that little domain. And it can be completely detached from uh, whether you're helpful or not, like what, whatever you're doing. So, you know, there are literally, um, I think there's a book out there and it's like how to, how to claim expert status and, in four hours or something like that. This book literally exists out there. And it's like, you know, you, you scour the earth and you find some little sort of domain and you try to get your thousand true fans um, and this, and basically plant your expert sort of flagpole down in that particular domain. Now I have nothing against the idea of a thousand true fans. I don't know if in practice uh, it's actually true, um, but forget about that for a minute. Even if it's true, then it seems like that can lead to some really odd behavior where you get people running around and trying to become an expert in some area that they might not even care about. Right. Like just because it's like, you know, one of the only sort of like unplanted territories and, you know, that seems like a sort of an odd way to determine, you know, what you want to do, how you want to devote your, your time and attention. Um, almost a vocational question in a sense. Um, so I think that, you know, that's where we have to be careful and that's where I see some, some really weird things happening um, with, with the cult of experts. Well, it's interesting what you say about being able to look somebody in the eye because now it's at least for me over the last 18 months or however long this crazy time has been, I've spent so much more time online, making connections online, meeting people online that it is probably going to be physically impossible for me to meet some of the people that I would have normally met to, to have that situation, like you said, have a beer, look them in the eyes, or as they do in Prague, this is quite cool, they, you may or may not know this, they get a, a drink, it's usually got a handle on the side there like that, and they smash them together and they lean them forward, so a little bit of their beer goes in the other person's cup, and the, the so basically the beer mixes in two cups, and they mm. look each other in the eyes intently. The reason they did that or still do that, bizarrely, is because they were checking for poison. So, uh, interesting. Looking somebody in the eye, check them for poison. Anyway, yeah. so 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 yeah, you we literally can't do that now for for a lot of mm-hmm. the maybe new relationships relationships we've made with people, and it becomes even more difficult when you when you are deep in this idea of being an expert online, where you are only talking about one thing. For example, you go to somebody's Twitter account and the vogue in this situation uh, if you want to build yourself into being an expert is to tweet about one thing so i would go over to your twitter account and say you're trying to just be one thing i'd only ever see one thing i don't see your personality and then i go over to your website and i don't see your personality either um and then i go over to i don't know maybe your email newsletter and i don't see it there either because the vogue is to talk about one thing over and over so you I think over the long term, it's self-defeating. You build you build a very big following very quickly, but the problem with that is that you build a very specific following as well very quickly. And when you don't want to talk about that very specific thing anymore, what do you do? You, your entire personality and meaning of life is t- tied to a, a thing or a concept, which, which is, is weird, right? Exactly. Yeah. It seems like the incentives are all wrong. Um, 
And, you know, you, you see that this crisis sort of plays out with people that have, let's, let's say an athlete, for example, you know, like notorious for having a real sort of crisis of identity when they have to retire or stop playing a sport, you know, and I I think it's very similar for people in the knowledge economy that kind of plant their flag down in one area. Like what, what happens when, you know, you, you want to talk about other things, you know, you want to move on, you know, like you go through different seasons of life and, you know, maybe you'll, I don't know, you know, um, have completely different interests and, and you sort of staked everything on this one, on this one topic. Um, you know, I mean, who knows, like a lot of people are doing that with NFTs right now. Right. And it's like, um, who knows what we'll be talking about a year from now. And, you know, one thing I know for sure that we'll be talking about, you know, for as long as I'm alive or I, I hope are just like fundamental issues of, of what it means to be human. It's why I like literature so much. I mean, these, th- these things are, are not going to go out of style. Um, I think that's why all of us and the, the little community that we're a part of, um, you know, it, it's, it's, these are like fundamental issues of the humanities in a certain sense. Um, and they're things that um, I think are are sort of worth investing in. And you know, this is one of the fundamental premises in in my book. You know, it's like what what can you invest in that you you is is surely gonna gonna pay a return. And those the only things that I'm really sure of are relationships and understanding what myself better and understanding what it means to be human better. Um, and so when I look at things that are out there in the world, like NFTs, the question for me becomes like, well, what does this say about like us? Um, and I think those are the more interesting sort of questions, right? Like what's actually going on here under the surface? Um, because that's going to be, you know, if, if NFTs become a thing, then they become a thing. Um, if they go away, then they go away. But at least we've, we've started to understand something important um, about ourselves um, and, and what it actually means and not just the thing itself. Like we can't mistake the thing itself for the, the desire that's actually created the thing in the first place. What, what do you think NFTs say about us? Go on, have, have your hot take. Have your hot take. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I haven't spent a ton of time thinking about it. Um, I think that they, they, I mean, first of all, I think it's a, I think it's a speculative bubble. Um, yes. I, 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 I think that, you know, it speaks to, in some senses, I think it speaks to a fundamental um, void in the sense that like people have money, they don't know what to do with it. And um, we're all sort of locked up and um, it's a way to, um, I mean, I think a lot of people are, are learning from NFTs. I mean, I, I literally know some people that are, you know, somebody that wrote a guest blog in my, in my newsletter basically said he's getting an NFT education. Like I'm taking $10,000 because I want to learn about this. And I'm probably learning a lot about himself in the process. Um, but I think that it, it speaks to a, a desire for, for non-fungible sort of things and probably says something about, um, 
I don't know about private property, about um, identity. I think at the deepest level, NFTs are about identity. Um, you know, what do they say about me? What does my collection of NFTs say? I know somebody doing something really cool right now where you can essentially um, <clears throat> mint NFT clothes online. And so you can like make a custom t-shirt that has all of the logos of your sort of favorite brands and things that are meaningful to you. You can create the the t-shirt. You can mint that shirt as an NFT. You can then wear it in any online world that you want. So it becomes part of your avatar. If you play video games, you can wear it inside of the video games. You can make it your Snapchat avatar. Maybe eventually if Twitter ever allows people that to have, you know, um, basically like you, you create this thing that only you own and it says something about your identity. And they also, by the way, make the physical t-shirt and send it to you. So you actually own the physical t-shirt embedded in the shirt is, is a code that signifies that it's your one of a kind NFT. Um, I think actually embedded in the fabric itself. So that to me is the clearest example yet. And I actually think this is going to work by the way, because it, it, the, the, the bet is that, this has something deeply tied into identities and we haven't quite figured out how it's going to work yet. I think with writers, with publishing, but at least with the art and with this particular company, it seems to be, this is my unique identity and clothes have always been a way that we sort of try to express something about ourselves. And I think the fact that NFTs are now moving into the, the domain of, of fashion and, and expression um, says kind of everything that you need to know about what's really going on at the deepest level with NFTs. Mm. I think there's, there's a few things I think about it. So I've got a small collection of NFTs myself. I am in that domain. You know, I run a design agency. I'm in tech. So these kind of things generally come around a lot um, for me. So I tend to look at them, analyze them, have a think about them. I think you're completely right about the question about what does it say about us because what NFTs feel like to me most of all is they are a, they're, they're basically a, a hyper, hyper, hyper mimetic desire loop just over and over. Every single project, there's a new, there's several projects that come out every day, 10, 20, 30 projects come out every day and some of them generate hype that is just insane that people scramble over and i've seen this because i'm in some discords where people are actually doing this and that is kind of you're watching people react like this and it's almost id level they're they're almost you know reduced down to an id form when the, some people in there are just scrambling desperately to get these things so it, it seems to tap deeply into i mean people in nfts joke about this it's one of the slang words being degen being a d degenerate gambler it seems to tap deeply into people's desire to you know gamble essentially um that's quite interesting to me and for me that is i can't get in i can't get in with that i i can't trust myself to get in with that um because when they first started coming around i saw myself starting to spend all day on discord and uh turning into that so that's one thing for me um and, th and then the other thing is 
I, I think there's good sides to it too. I think it, it's for the first time ever, and I genuinely think this, it's getting rid of the gatekeepers properly because it gives visual creators and hopefully other kind of creators a way to a way to kind of make money that um, doesn't require any kind of complicated setup. You don't need to have a subscriber list. You don't need to have an email newsletter. You don't need to set up an e-commerce store. You can actually almost buy a part of your favorite person online, buy a part of your favorite creator. I think that's really good as well. Um, mm. It's interesting. I think I think that's an important point of of NFTs. I think when people spend a lot of money on an NFT from a certain creator, it creates a, a some kind of a bond between the 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 owner and the creator, some kind of kin, kindredness in a sense. And I know there are some creators of the NFTs that actually, you know, buying their NFT is an invitation into some form of relationship, right? To, to greater or lesser degrees. It might be they get on a zoom call or, or whatever. So there is some, it's like owning an artist artwork mm. way before NFTs. This is nothing new. It does create some, some relationship. I have things. I don't think anything you can see from my, from my zoom background, but I have art hanging on my walls and there's a story behind almost all, all of them. Uh, it's ma- really the main reason that I buy art is because I come from a family of artists. So my mom was an artist, my grandmother's an artist and I buy because of the story. Like in my, in my living room, there's a a painting of Don Quixote that I bought off of the wall at an Italian restaurant in France while I was on vacation. I saw it on the wall. Um, That story has always resonated with me. And I begged the owner of the restaurant to f- track the artist down for me. He got him on the phone and we worked out a deal and, and I bought it off the wall and it's hanging there. And it means a lot to me because of that story. I didn't buy it because of the objective qualities itself. I mean, I think it's cool, um, but it, it's, it's, it has meaning for me. So it takes me back to, I think an important part of NFTs and I, you, you touched on this there are different NFTs generated at thousands generated every day. And there are narratives that are going on in discords that I'll never know about and on the internet and all different kinds of places. And it speaks to, we live in a narrative driven economy. You know, this is a a narrative driven world where stories are really important. And in a sense, like the people that are really good storytellers have a huge advantage right now. Um, There are such, I mean, there are some NFTs that are just really freaking cool. Um, it's like really cool art, but the stories are, are really critical. And I see this happening, you know, politics is very narrative driven right now. Uh, the, the whole economy is narrative driven. So in that sense that, that what we're seeing with NFTs is almost a microcosm of, of, I think what's going on in the broader economy. Well, it's, it's the, it's the old marketing story, isn't it? I forget who said it now, but at some point in the seventies or the eighties, we switched from marketing products on their merits to marketing products on their marketability, basically. Um, It doesn't matter whether a product is good anymore or not. It doesn't matter what its objective qualities are. What really matters is the product that gets promoted the best, the product that gets in the celebrity's hand or the product that gets on a TikTok video that goes viral. That's what really matters. So to, to some extent... With, with with nfts and you know with wider art as well often some people will buy a particular piece of art because of the very reason that it's ugly or that everybody else hates it you know I, 
th- I'm, I'm thinking of maybe things like Damien Hurst when he's chopped chopped things in half and other things like that. So the, the, there's kind of a there's a backlash sometimes against some of this, and I think that's what's most interesting to me about NFTs is the culture is the culture around it. Um, you probably won't be too familiar with a lot of it because you don't strike me as a guy who's mega into NFTs and things like that, right? I'm not, I'm not mega into it. I mean, look, here's the deal. I I know myself well enough to know (laughs) that I know my personality and I would go down a huge rabbit hole and spend all, all of my time. Like I just, I know myself well enough. Like I lived in Vegas for a few years (laughs) and I, I had, I had very strict boundaries because I just have the personality type where if I'm in, I'm all in. And I just haven't had the time to do that with NFTs. I probably never will. Well, that's what's interesting to me about NFTs because the NFT, you buying an NFT is just the initial access to this crazy world. So I've never seen, when we talk about things being human and when we talk about new tribes and things like that, I can't remember in my whole, whole lifetime of being online where something is so distinctly tribal that's online. So there's slang words that you won't understand a lot of them are taken from, you know, Wall Street and actual proper investing and things like that. Paper hands, diamond hands, that kind of thing. Um, GM meaning good morning and, and all where, these. Where did that where did that come from, the GM, by the way? How how did this get to be so big? I mean, other than mimesis, which but where where did it I mean, how long has it been around? Is this something that has been going on for a very long time? GM as good morning. I, I actually looked up looked it up on Urban Dictionary because I was curious as well. Um, it's been on Urban Dictionary since 2004. Wow. So the word and, and the shortening has been around for a long time. But NFT, well, the, you know, the whole crypto community, crypto slang has grabbed that word and that's the thing that everybody says. So what's most interesting about it all is, is all of the slang that's impenetrable. So a lot of it is purposefully designed to keep you out. And it's almost like this whole rise of it all is, is is some kind of, I don't know, some kind of release valve for everybody for over, maybe over this last couple of years. I don't want to attribute everything to coronavirus, but may, maybe it is over these last couple of years. We've felt so alien and so separated from people that there's just been this kind of rise of this online tribe and some people who are, you know, predisposed to this kind of thing have jumped in and now they've got a tribe for the first time that's online that's distinctly them that does actually feel human because a lot of this stuff doesn't feel human online. A lot of it's incredibly fake. And yeah, I th- that's a lot of what I see in it that some of the people who've gone hugely, hugely into crypto they've almost released the shackles of this fake personality that they had online, this kind of whitewashed, perfectly crafted aphorism tweets. I've done exactly the same myself. Uh, they've they've released all the shackles, they've un- undone the release valve, and now they're like, I'm in NFTs now. I don't have to care about any of that anymore. Um, it's quite interesting. Yeah. There's all, yeah, I mean... There's an aspect of ritual, almost a religious aspect to all of this. Have you read the book, The $12 Million Stuffed Shark? No. 
Yeah, so it's the twelve million dollars stuffed shark about Damien Hurst uh, shark that's right. in like formaldehyde suspended. It's called uh, the Curious Case of Contemporary Art, or the Curious Economics of Contemporary Art is the name of the book. I think it came out eight years ago or something like that. But I think it's the 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 single best source for understanding what's going on with NFTs because the whole book is about you know how how is it possible for this you know shark to sell for twelve million dollars and it just talks about the creation of a world, this world that's inaccessible to, to you and I, to, to almost everybody um, with the major auction houses and the sort of culture that's created, the language, the barriers to entry, um, you know, little everything signals something from like what you wear to the auction house to where you sit when you're inside. Um, everything has meaning. And and I think it seems to me like something very similar is happening um, with, with NFTs. I mean, I, I think it's important and I, I, that's why I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep my finger on the pulse as much as I can without getting too sucked in and, and using time that I don't have and, and, you know, making my wife um, get upset with me because um, I, I don't start dinner until 9 PM or something like that. And that already happens, by the way, I already get in enough trouble. So um, I'm, I'm trying not to. So what's the right balance, right? Like how much do I need to know? That's the question with almost everything, right? It's like, how deep do I want to go? How much do I need to know um, to be dangerous? I mean, I have the same question with, with the stock market too. Um, I mean, I used to be a lot more serious about it than I am today. And I just realized my, my time and attention is better spent, you know, on, on other things, but that's the struggle for me right now with NFTs. Like when is, when is enough enough? I think it's because you, you can feel the mimetic pull of something cool happening slightly to the right of your vision. And you, and we all want to be part of the cool thing. Uh, because, because the, the, there is a, there is a very cool aspect to it as well. It is the the whole thing with crypto, the whole thing with altcoins and Bitcoin and Ethereum and everything, it's all a gigantic fuck you to the way that the world is. Everything about it, the way that nobody takes themselves seriously, the way that people spend millions on JPEGs, the whole thing is a gigantic fuck you. And there's something very attractive about that. Even mm -hmm. to the fact that, you know, that one of the that one of the most successful collections is the Ether Rocks, and they're going for millions of dollars now. And when they were first created, there wasn't even an image of them. It was just a, a, a hash link on your ledger to say that you owned it, and people were still paying millions for them. The, the whole thing is just absolutely ludicrous. And I think that's very attractive for people because it is inherently human. You, I haven't come across anybody yet who is kind of fake when they they claim they're into nfts or they're into crypto everybody is themselves which is weird because a lot of people use pseudonyms so you don't actually know often who the real person is but they're the most real version of themselves than they probably would have ever dared be anywhere else it it's very weird and kind of very refreshing at the same time because it, it's just it's just an antithesis to everything else, especially the stuff we were talking about at the beginning with 
non-fiction authors churning out the same book over and over, the very whitewashed personality is completely against that. And I think that's what's very appealing to a lot of people. Yeah, I agree. And, and it's always, you know, it's about the, the, what does it mean to, to be involved with this is important, is important. I mean, I, I talked to people that bought in on GameStop, uh, in back in January and I asked, you know, one guy who lost a shitload of money, um, he, he got in at the wrong time and he ended up losing a lot of money and he literally didn't care at all. You know, like it was almost like if I make money, great, but I just want to be a part of this. And that's really important, right? It was, it was about what it means. Again, this comes back to a question of identity. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on how NFTs might affect like writing, publishing books, that kind of a world. I think, you know, publishers have no idea. I think they're kind of scared. Um, but there is very much like we're getting rid of the gatekeepers, you know, that that's the feeling. And I think they can sense it. Yes. Um, even Substack has done good things. Um, really good things when it comes to this, you know, like I, I wrote an essay a couple of weeks ago and I, tr- I tried to place it in a, one of the major outlets and they all passed. And the, the odd thing is that I had a sense of relief. I was like, well, thank God I just put it on my Substack, and it's probably going to be better living there anyways, probably better for everybody. Um, if it lives there rather than one of these big outlets and like, what a, what a weird sort of thing, right? Like it, it's almost as if there's these editors that have, you know, they all went to the, the same schools. They all know each other. They're all sort of, you know, at least in the U S they all sort of East coast media, they're all friends. They publish things by people that they know. If you don't know anybody, then you're going to have a hard time getting published. And it's like, they're, they've lost their power as gatekeepers because people now have other channels of distribution for people that actually want to read what they write, you know, and, and that's tremendously satisfying to be able to, to form those, those communities and to not have to, I mean, you used to have to go through the wall street journal and the New York times. So, I mean, I'm interested in seeing where this goes. I've been thinking about it a lot. I don't have any answers. Um, but I, I hope that it spills into sort of traditional media as well. Well, I think, I think to park NFTs for a second, just the whole gatekeeper thing, I think the most um, pungent example, I think pungent's the best word to use, is somebody like Joe Rogan, somebody like Alex Jones, these kind of people, they have proven true, specifically Joe Rogan. He's built a multi-million dollar empire on producing a podcast by himself and with one other person. He, he's eventually he got bought by Spotify, but he was already making a lot of money before that. He was independent for over a decade. And I think he, he was, for me, was one of the people to see at the very top of that kind of pile, proving that you didn't need to be playing the same games as everybody else did now. Now the, the guests that he's got on his podcast are the same people who are doing the news rounds. Who, who are doing five-minute clips on American TV, on British TV, on global TV, apart from he has them on the podcast and they sit there and talk to him for three hours, which, which is, um, you know, objectively better. In, in my eyes, you're getting more, more of an in-depth interview. So how can he provide this thing that's free, that's better, whereas the, the, the other thing that we're kind of paying for, the news and other TV shows can only have this same person on for five minutes. 
So I think what what the gatekeepers being removed and this idea of almost kind of a a decentralized creation, what it really is, what it gives you and I the power to do is to go really in depth on a topic that some people are really interested in. So if if you if that article was successfully picked up, you would have likely have had to water it down or make it a certain word count and all of those other kind of things. Whereas when you are freed up to put it on your own platform, you can go more in depth. Another example I can think of, a recent one, do you know who Dominic Cummins is? Have you heard? Uh, the name sounds familiar. Yeah. But I don't think I know. Yeah. So he was kind of the architect of the whole Brexit thing in the UK. Uh, okay. He, he was sort of the director of communications. I guess that would be what you'd say he was. Um, he was played by Benedict Cumberbatch in the Netflix documentary that was about Brexit. Um, so he, he architected the Leave campaign, then he architected Brexit, then he architected Boris Johnson getting into government and all that kind of thing. When he left government or got booted out, depending on who you talk to, he didn't decide to sign a book deal with somebody, even though he's got some juicy secrets probably he could tell. He didn't sign a Netflix documentary or any of these other big things. He started a Substack. He's he's got a Substack, a ten I think it's ten dollars a month, his subda substack. And that's where he puts all his things. He 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 holds regular AMAs, Ask Me Anythings every week. He he publishes articles to his private Substack uh, as well as his public one. So uh, he he's like a he was a big figure in 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 the UK, you know in the UK had a huge impact on the UK. Had I would be willing to bet people lining up to get his story, and he chose to be his own gatekeeper. Yeah, you know Sal- Salman Rushdie is publishing his next book on Substack. Um, so yeah, you know, it's true. I mean, it's, it's can be brutal working with editors or, or people that, you know, they, they either won't publish something unless it fits a certain narrative um, or you, you know, you can't use certain language. You can't even be your own voice. I mean, there are some editors out there that are notorious for editing out your voice um, so that you, you, you know, you basically don't sound like yourself. Um and that's hard. You know, I've worked with editors like that before and there's tremendous freedom that comes with just being able to, to, to put things out there and establishing trust with an audience. Um, so I'm not surprised, I guess. Substack is, is interesting though, because you know, there's, there's no reason why Substack is still centralized from a, from a technical standpoint. There's no reason why my Substack couldn't be gone tomorrow if somebody at Substack wanted to censor me. So I think there still is a little bit of, of risk there. I think, you know, Substack has become a very mimetic thing itself. Um, it's probably the only reason that I'm on it, but I've had a great experience so far, but I think it, I do remind myself every once in a while, okay, like download all of your, download all of the emails, right? Because you don't own this thing. Um, and I, I wonder if there's going to be a blockchain sort of version of that at some point where, you know, our audience, our, our, all of our work is something that nobody can ever take away from us. <laughs> there, there kind of is. There's things starting to appear. There is uh, Mirror, if you've seen Mirror. Um, yeah. it, it's kind of the first attempt, albeit it's quite confusing to understand. It's kind of the first attempt to make, put writing on the blockchain to, to give 
to give audience members uh, a way to be part of of the actual publication and to give them actually some monetary value to be part of that and some ownership as well although it's all very early and it's a little bit confusing still at the minute substack is interesting because they are now going to journalists and asking them to come on substack and actually paying them as well there's been stories about this uh, in the guardian in the uk about they're paying some uk journalists to go on substack so it's becoming a publishing house now as well Uh, and inevitably when you become a publishing house you now have opinions so it it's going to be weird to see what happens to Substack. I would suggest there will be a narrative that starts to develop on Substack too at some point soon. But what what really everything else provides us to do, even if Substack disappears, like you said, you can still download the email the emails and take them over to another platform. The same the same way as joe rogan had a podcast and it was just released everywhere and now it's just released on spotify there's kind of a there's an ownership of your own audience to some extent isn't there and that audience is willing to follow you around all around the internet if one of them gets closed down it's why i mentioned alex jones before because he obviously got deplatformed from everywhere but he still took a huge proportion of his audience to his own website um that's kind of more possible than ever now because of basically how easy it is to do. Did anything happen to Joe Rogan when he went on Spotify? I've, I've, I've heard that something changed. I don't know. I don't think the show itself changed the style of the show itself, but did, does he have fewer listeners now, more listeners? Did it, did anything change that you're aware of? I thought I heard something about that where somebody said there were some negative consequences to the Spotify deal. Yeah. The, there's a couple of things that's happened some of them, I keep saying interesting a lot in this episode. I guess it is quite interesting. Um, a couple of things happened. So number one, uh, he's, he's essentially got no community around his podcast anymore because his episodes are not being released on YouTube. People used to comment on all his episodes in thousands and there was a huge community around his podcast that way. There's no ability to do that on Spotify anymore. So he's kind of lost that. Number two, there was a couple of his episodes that got pulled. So as soon as he ended up on Spotify, there was an opinion that came into his podcast and Spotify pulled certain ones of his episodes. Every Alex Jones episode, rather predictably, um, and and some of the other ones that didn't even seem really that extreme. Alex Jones's episodes aren't even that extreme. But there was clearly an agenda. There, there was a very specific kind of episode that they pulled so they, they pulled some episodes, so even though his podcast doesn't hasn't changed, and it hasn't, there's a very specific agenda going on with, well, he's getting edited because some of his ep- episodes have, have gone. And then also what, what was actually quite interesting is apparently his download figures have not gone down and his listenership has not gone down too much. But I was reading an article somewhere, I'll have to try and dig it out, some people analysed, more intelligent than me, analysed the effect. They called it the Joe Rogan effect. So usually when you appear on his podcast, your Twitter goes up by a certain amount, your YouTube, etc. Basically all your metrics go up. They've seen that drop significantly since he's moved to Spotify. So now when you go on there as a guest, previously I think it said you could expect a a five to 20,000 
follower increase on Twitter if you go on Joe Rogan. Now that they're, they're seeing that it's as little as one to 5,000. So apparently the listenership's not gone down, but for some reason, people aren't following people on Twitter anymore. So that says says one of two things. One, the listener figures are not correct. Or two, there's a different type of listener that isn't really jiving with the listenership on Spotify, which is strange. Yeah, for some reason it's not converting into into audience growth. Yeah. You know, and that this idea of sort of um using the social capital of somebody else is a really interesting one to me. And there are companies that are popping up that are actually allowing, um, that are monetizing this idea. So the idea that if I want to grow, you know, my social following, I, I go on Joe Rogan and I get a ton, ton of extra followers or something like that. Um, go on a bunch of different podcasts and, you know, whoever listens to you might, a few of them might follow me. Um, there's a company called Pear Pop that just came out in the US, very small right now. I think they just raised their seed funding, but their website's functional. And you can go on there and I could literally go, and I think their focus right now is TikTok. And I could say, I want to pay, I'll pay $2,000 to have Snoop Dogg um, appear, like basically like appear in the first five seconds of my, of my TikTok video or vice versa, where like, he'll do what is called a duet on TikTok or a split screen. He's on one half of the screen. I'm on the other half. And, you know, basically the whole point, the reason that people are doing this is they're just buying the audience of, of these celebrities and Snoop Dogg is on the platform. And if you just pay the right price, he'll appear in your TikTok video. And, you know, you, the, the, the company shows a chart where, you know, if you're, if he's in your video, your audience numbers just, just go way up. So I don't know how that works. I don't know if he, if, who's managing that for him. Um, it seems like there could be some serious like brand dilution going around. Um, you know, if, if I'm a celebrity and I'm just all of a sudden like appearing in people's TikToks left and right, I don't know how long you can sort of milk that. And I mean, I guess he's collecting a few thousand bucks every time he does it, but I find it, um, you go to podcast is free, obviously, but this idea of sort of like buying influence from those who have an existing audience is, is sort of a strange one to me because it's, it's unearned in, in some sense. Right. I mean, like at least if I'm on Joe Rogan's podcast, it was because Joe Rogan thought I was interesting enough to talk to or something like that. Right. But like, what if we live in a world where you never quite know, like I, I could just, you know, be associated with Joe Rogan in some way because I paid him enough money. Um, and, and like who, who knows who's paying who anything that's kind of a weird social sphere to, to live in. There's a lot of mimetic games going on. I mean, that's essentially what this pair pop company is. Um, you know, it's basically like buying mimetic desire because your name is attached to somebody with a larger following. Uh, so I, I, I don't know if I, I feel like we're just at the start of monetizing, uh, social influence for audio building, audience building. I think it's already happened for a long time, though. That you you're just kind of looking at it in in the pure pure money transfer. You're you're saying right, I'm going to pay this to get this. Whereas this kind of thing's been happening in marketing and PR for a, a very long time already. It's just maybe that it's not money that transferred hands, or maybe money transferred hands in a different way further down the line. You know, I I might say to you if I had 
a podcast that was hugely popular you come on my podcast and i'm then i'll come on yours money might not have transferred hands but there was still a, a quid pro pro you know what i'm trying to say quid quid pro quo quid pro quo yeah. yes that yeah. my mouth's not working properly um there, there was still a reciprocation that went on anyway in in that kind of environment and and i i'd argue even with joe rogan that that's to some extent working the other way too as maybe even more so now he's on spotify there's he might not pay you to be on but he's only inviting you on because he's seen that you are interesting or you already have a big audience so that there's a thing right. that, that he's expecting to get out of that situation um which ultimately happens in in any kind of podcast situation or pr situation that you do, the interesting the uninteresting people don't get invited on do they yeah but you you're right that it's becoming it's both becoming more visible like that thing that you just described but almost kind of unashamedly visible as well because i, I don't know if you're familiar with cameo have you heard of cameo mhm mhm you just go on Cameo and you can just get hundreds, if not thousands of celebrities at this point. You just, you pay them anything from $20 right up to like $1,000 and they'll do a personal message for you or record a, vi- or record a voice message or, or things like that. It's, it's almost like everything is regressing to a gig economy. Exactly. Well, so Cameo is the one where if it's my wife's birthday, I could get her favorite actress to say happy birthday or, or something like that. Right. And yes. like a five minute text message. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Well, and the difference is um, it's totally transactional now, you know, like the, there's, there's no, it's, it's purely transactional um, at least with, you know, the, the podcast sort of circuit or network, there are, there is some relationship building it. Maybe it's a quid pro quo, but um, it's, it's at least not purely transactional in a, in a financial sense, right? There are some things going on in terms of um, branding, reputation, people that we want to be associated with, things like that. So I, I, I think that we're only at the very beginning of seeing the next stage of that. I think you're right. I think that's always went on for as long as, you know, humans have, 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 you know, have, have, have transacted, you know, right. Um, that, that kind of thing always, as always, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But I just think right now we're entering sort of a new phase in that where it's just becoming, it's going to enter a hyper, hyper growth mode, um, kind of the way that NFTs are this hyper, hyper, hyper mimetic sort of thing right now. I think we're going to see the same thing with, with reputation. And that takes us all the way back to the beginning of, of the cult of experts, I think. Um, where, you know, is it possible to, to buy expertise? Um, it seems like, you know, it, 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 it might be possible. Um, and that is, that's kind of a, it's kind of a strange, a, a strange world, right. Where you sort of see critiques of capitalism where it's like, you know, if, if the money, if the money can buy you expertise, if the money can buy you, um, authority, then that's why some people think that the system is broken. Mm. And I, I think also with the, this idea of buying reputation, it's happening so vividly on places like Twitter and also Substack and anywhere where you create content, basically, on the internet right now. It feels like in, in this whole cult of experts type thing, 
and by the way, I, I think the idea of cult of experts is probably the most relevant that it's ever been right now. Um, we we almost have a godlike level of experts that seemingly really really never say anything, but they, they make millions. We we we're at this point now where the reputational exchange is is really the most important thing. Um, if I can transfer money to increase my reputation, that's a very simple transaction for me to do and a very quick transaction. If I can pay, I don't know, if I can pay Joe Rogan to be on his podcast, that's a very quick reputational advantage I can make. Um, but the same goes on with, with Twitter and and other places like that where if I can get the eyeballs of some of my work from somebody who has got 200,000 followers, that increases my reputation. So you get into this kind of weird content pyramid scheme that I've spoken about before that we've all heard, that everybody enters at the bottom of the pyramid and they relentlessly promote everybody else's content that's above it until they move up to the next rung of the ladder and then the people come in at the bottom and promote your content and then you go up another level and then you promote the people above that until you sit at the top of the the content hierarchy and you've become a an expert basically and once you hit the top of the expert level you don't promote anybody's work anymore and everybody else is promoting yours underneath it's it is weird it's it's strange and you know one of my favorite sayings is like you know you learn a lot about somebody from what they'll do for somebody that has nothing to 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 give back to them that can't do anything for them you know um and it's interesting, like there are some people at the the minority of people at the top of the pyramid, let's say a really well-established author. It's very, very rare for them to do anything for somebody that's at the bottom. Um, you know, they're, they're just having, you know, whatever people tweet about them and talk about them all day long. Um, it's almost as if there's a, there's a weird inversion sort of reputational power structure thing going on where they'll rarely actually um, let, and maybe it's just, you know, protection, right? Like protecting their reputation. Um, But you'll rarely see them um, give nearly as much as they get, if that makes sense. And in terms of, in terms of like helping, helping others get off the ground. Um, you know, and I've, I mean, I've, I've seen that and there are some really, really great people out there, but in general, everybody's sort of trying to guard their fiefdom, right? It's like this hyper competitive thing and people view everybody else as, as a competitor. And I think we, you know, uh, I think we need to sort of move, move past that in some way and, and sort of not view each other as, and that's the beauty of the creator economy is if it's done well, um, we can, we can lift each other up, right? We can help one another, boost one another's work. Um, and not be engaged in this sort of game of, um, you know, um, it's a weird sort of a weird, you know, political game where I'll only help you if you have something to kind of offer me, um, a very sort of utilitarian transactional world. That's one that I I really don't want to live in. Yeah. It's a very reputational, reputational transactional environment. That's very much like that episode of black mirror. If you've seen it, where nosedive i can't remember the name of it with the likes is it where, 
where everybody rates everybody yes. else and yes. every single interaction. Yeah. Yes, that's the one. It's very much like that situation where we we all have some kind of external reputational value and we're all trying to increase and make sure it doesn't decrease the reputational value. So for people who have a higher reputational value to us, say, for example, uh, a Naval or a, a James Clear or something like this, we would never say something bad about these people because we want to gain the curry of favour from those people. We want to just take off a little bit of their reputational advantage and give it to ourselves if we could get a retweet from one of those people, well, wouldn't that increase our reputational advantage? So we're all playing this kind of, well, a lot of us are playing this weird game. And then it's only when you've been in that for a while that you realise that, like you said, those people, well, for one, they get thousands of messages a day anyway, and you're just another one of those people. So they're not going to see it, for one. And for two, they're trying to guard their own reputation too. It's it's like everybody's built their own moat of reputation around themselves yeah and then that episode of of black mirror nosedive um i think we're thinking about the same one there is a there's a there's a girl who is trying desperately to increase her reputation because she wants to go to her friend's wedding and you she they literally won't let her travel and get on the plane um without a high enough reputation so it's a total class structure um it's very much reminds me of the social credit system in china uh, which really exists, but at the the character in the in the in the movie who's like the hero is this old sort of you know truck driver who has a horrible reputation, uh, and I mean her 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 credit score in in the in the episode is just has been ruined because she just opted out, she totally opted out of the system, and she's the only character in the whole thing who has any semblance of freedom, and she helps the main character in the episode sort of realize this ridiculous game that she's been playing the whole time. It's a wonderful, if anybody who's listening hasn't seen it, I, I highly recommend it. And to return to your point, it's the only person really in the episode who's human too. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful place to end. Thank you so much, Luke. It's been, it's been very, very nice to sit down and have a chat with you. Yeah, good good to finally chat in person. Man, I, I taught Thomas and I finally did just a couple of weeks ago. Um, that was so that was fun. And I'm I'm slowly working my way through the social club. Perfect. Have you yeah. got any final points or anything you want to shill or mention? Um no, I, I, I really don't. Um, <laughs> you know, just other than just to say thank you and I'm glad glad we made it happen. Um and uh, hopefully, you know, we can uh, we can put into practice uh, some of the things we, we've talked about on the episode. Yeah, uh, I'll leave you to get back to the more boring other podcast episodes you've been on. <laughs> this definitely was not one. That's for sure. Thanks, Craig. Cheers, man. Really appreciate it. Man.